Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Pratt Library. Uh, I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and I'm happy to see all of you here this afternoon. This um, Women's Literary Festival is um, really the high point of the Pratt's Women's History Month programming, and I always look forward to it every year. I wanted to just say a special welcome to um, Joanne Jalavet and the Literary Yours Book Club, if you ladies would like to raise your hands. Thank you. Um, <laughs> the, um, the Book Club has very graciously um, decided to donate um, some money to the Pratt today, and so we're going to take some pictures later. Um, all of our programs here are supported by private funds, and so um, a lot of the publishers who uh, are who supported the, our authors today have provided part of their expenses, but the Pratt has paid for some of the rest. So um, we, if you're looking for a worthy cause this year to donate to, I highly recommend the Pratt Library. Um, this event is um, is the result of the hard work and the intelligent decisions of. Linda Duggins of Grand Central Hachette Book Group. And you're going to hear from Linda in a bit. But um, she, it, she always finds the best new women writers um, of the year and, and brings them to the Pratt. And we're really grateful for that, Linda. So it's really fun to work with you on this. And um, my other um, partner in crime on this event is Joy Bramble, the publisher of the Baltimore Times. And Joy's going to come up and say a few words. Good afternoon, everyone. It's wonderful to see all you wonderful people coming to this event. This actually is my very favorite event of the year. And wanted to thank Judy and the Pratt, and particularly Linda, for putting such a wonderful um, program together. Every year, it just seems to get better and better. And this year, for some reason, we have four very good-looking people. Aren't they beautiful? <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I just wanted to put a plug in. I met Linda seven years ago in Antigua at a book festival and I, in Antigua. And I said, but Linda, maybe we could do something in Baltimore. And she said, well, let me see what I could do. And lickety split, she had four authors here. And that's been going on for seven years. So put it in your book for next year. One day in March, one Saturday in March. We're not sure which one yet. But just remember to come back. And thank you again for coming. Good afternoon, everybody. I am thrilled to be back at my library home away from home, Enoch Pratt. And Judy, Joy, thank you. Thank you for everything. I also want to thank uh, Anthony McCarthy at the Anthony McCarthy Show on WEAA Radio, and Ella Curry from Black Pearls Magazine. Ella actually has her little fancy device on the table, so be careful, ladies. Uh, she's taping every breath. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you also to you wonderful book junkies in the audience. I mean, this is a habit none of us are dropping. I don't care what they say. The mind-blowing group of talented women on this stage is reason alone to celebrate and honor all of us during Women's History Month. All the time, really, not just March. You all know that we gather this year, this time of year, for the last seven years, 
And we do it to sit and talk and learn and share. So we are thrilled to have these fabulous writers on the stage. The lyrical, emotional, flavorful, and poignant prose and poetry, yeah, I said poetry, within the pages of Dina Nyeri's A Teaspoon of Earth and Sea, Jamie Attenberg's The Middlesteens, Raquel Cepeda's Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina, and Ayana Mathis's The Twelve Tribes of Hattie will keep you hoping and praying and on the edge of your seats. Raquel's journey to herself is filled with intrigue and beauty and negotiation, as well as spiritualism, love, and amazing discoveries. Edie, her immediate family, the suburban Jewish community, as well as Edie's beautiful love with Mr. Kenneth Song, owner of her favorite Chinese restaurant, will keep you laughing and crying and thinking about yourself and food and all that it means as you read the middle steams. Twins Saba and Matab, and twins Philadelphia and Jubilee in a teaspoon of earth and sea and the 12 tribes of Hattie respectively are the backbone. They're the nucleus of each novel as you delve into the worlds of both sets of twins and who and what they represent in their communities that they come out of and the mothers and fathers who claim them. The immigrants, the migrants, everybody's on this journey and no matter where you are, where you're coming from or where you're going, it's just that, it's a journey. This country that we're in, this fabulous mashup of all this madness, what is an American? Who is American? How is this determined? Are we the color of our skins, the texture of our hair, the clothes we wear, or the number of pounds on the bodies we stand in? Audre Lorde said, since I have always been the outsider, it is again both an asset and a liability in my life and my work, a source of strength as well as a source of great vulnerability. She also said for me, women, woman, is synonymous with poet because poetry is about feeling. Maya Angelou, who I love, she said, I decided many years ago to invent myself. I had obviously been invented by someone else, by a whole society, and I didn't like their invention. <laughs> so with that said, let's jump right in and give these ladies a wonderful round of applause. <laughs> let's start with the journey. Here's your books. You see these beautiful book covers? I lugged these four books home from New York, y'all, in my suitcase. The covers are gorgeous. The stories are gorgeous. Wonderful, wonderful writing. Where did you come from to get to that book sitting in front of you? Jump in. Me? Jane. You're looking at me. Um, <laughs> you know, the interesting, I don't know if you can hear or not. Um, the interesting thing is, uh, you know, this is set in the community where I grew up, but it took me 20 years to be able to look back and and write and write about that that community. Um, sometimes you just need the perspective, you need the you need the time. Um, so I had a, a really long journey in those 20 years, but it but when I sat down to write it, I I, I, re I recognized that I had been probably writing this book the entire time. Mm -hmm. And then when I actually wrote it, it came out very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wrote most of it in a summer, but it really I had been writing it. You know, that's that the journey is the writing for me. Mm -hmm. Raquel? 
had a similar experience. This book was, you know, this is about my life. This is the, um, you know, first Dominican, Amer this is the first memoir by a Dominican American author in the popular market. Um, and basically I had to live it in order to write it. And it was, I started writing little different versions of it over the years. But again, it took me like six months, five months to write the whole thing. And then like, it took me more time to research the ancestral DNA part of it than it did to write it because it was just there. It was just waiting to be birthed. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I feel like we're all going to sort of say we have these very similar experiences. I think it is the case. For me, this is a, a, a first book. So, you know, there's this, this phrase that people say, which is that you know, people are often writing their first books their whole lives. But I think probably it might be more accurate to say that people are also working their way up to understanding their obsessions their whole lives. And then when something gives you um, a form or a content through which to work out your obsessions, the actual writing comes fairly quickly after that. So I think I probably have been sort of obsessing about Philadelphia and people who were, you know, sort of born first great, first um, generation Great Migration kids for many, 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 many years without even necessarily realizing it. Well, I guess I, yeah, I agree with all of that. I um, was. I mean, I lived in Iran until I, uh, 1988, um, after the Iran-Iraq war when I left. And, and um, at that point, I think I spent a lot of years repressing Iran and putting it away. Um, and so, um, you know, but all of that just kind of builds up without you really knowing. And, and I spent so many years trying to be American. But um, when I, uh, the process of getting all of that back and starting to write this book and the research all came at once um, in a matter of a year or two. and. Um, and so, yeah, it, it would be foolish to say that in all those years where I was pushing it away that it wasn't actually bubbling up there trying to get out. And I just want to say, because this is my fourth book, it, it isn't always this way. So you guys are in trouble for the next one. <laughs> you, you talked about research. Yeah, and all, I mean, how much? But it all comes out, you know, like that, like really instant, instantly. Yeah. In, a, yeah. in a, It's like when that happens, it's really a gift because... I don't know. It's hard. Uh, you're just you just wait. Yeah. <laughs> the answer to that is we just have to go and create some drama. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there's drama all around. You don't have to create it. Yeah. How much research did go into your books? I mean, I know we have the memoir and three novels, but there's still research involved, right? There was a lot of um, unlearning. Um, <clears throat> I grew up in New York City, the Dominican Republic, back in New York City, and basically I went to parochial and public schools where I, you know, was taught during Black History Month and Latino History Month um, that, you know, false falsehoods about how uh, the Americas were came together. And I'll give you an example. You know, like for example, in the Dominican Republic, um, we had Amerindian, the Amerindian slave trade, and we also were. The, it was the blueprint for the transatlantic slave trade. Um, the first the first boatload of slaves ever to be left in the Americas was in Santo Domingo. And these are not, I never learned any of this in school. And I've always learned that, you know, when I heard um, Amerindians, indigenous Africans, those words were associated with uh, code words like primitive, savage, ungodly. And then I would hear about, you know, the missionaries that came to bring Jesus and bring the Lord and, and the capitalists that were the Spaniards and, and all the other Europeans coming to the new world. I would start to look at, you know, Europeans as being better than and our communities being kind of subordinate. It's like something that you get taught and it becomes just part, it almost becomes intrinsic, you know, and you see it, you see it in, in the attitudes and, 
in, in the way that children walk even. And um, I had to unlearn all of that and actually, you know, write what I've learned in this book. So it was almost like a journal. It was almost like journaling as well. And um, the ancestral DNA part, um, I worked with family tree DNA and I basically had to search for relatives I didn't know I had. So I, um, I, had, I took an empty DNA test. I, my father um, almost died, which is the reason why I had him, which you know, really helped me start this journey. And he took the test and we started, I started meeting family members that way and learning about my history. And um, you know, that was, a, I, don't, I don't process um, DNA samples, obviously. So that also took a couple of months <laughs> um, of, of working in analysis and talking to you know, a, a scientist. So for me, it was a very spiritual, a very mystical journey, um, and also a very scientific one, where I married logos, the rational, and mythos, the mythical, together. So, you know, and it's, and I bookended it with a year of research, but it's really, this is kind of a point of departure with what I'm doing now. Mm. It's still, you know, it's still a process. It's still happening. And I'm encouraging other people um, in the diaspora, especially in the Latino communities, to go out there and unlearn and relearn the truth. Mm -hmm. Did any of the other authors do any kind of research at all in yeah. the work? Well. I did a ton of research just because having to relearn um, Iran in a particular time and place. Um, I had been gone for so many years. I started with all of these details that I remembered, and then I went and started to read books and um, and gather all the, you know, facts about the revolution and the war and all of that stuff, and realized some of my memories were regional or just wrong, or you know, I had misplaced them. And so I actually started to get books shipped from Iran, which was really hard to do because you have to find a bookseller willing to, you know, send to an American author. Um, at the, their own risk, you know, in the Isra Islamic Republic, and a lot of people did. They sent me albums and videos and books, and and then um, then the biggest challenge after that was finding. Um, my book is set in the north of Iran in a tiny little rice farming community um, of villagers, and so. But I had to find people who had been raised um, in that time and place, um, and were still American educated enough to be able to be interviewed by me and, and read my draft. So I actually found a whole network of them which was brilliant and they read the book and pointed out my mistakes and and then um, and then I found this wonderful man who is 70 and retired to south of France and he's this Frenchman who wrote who devoted his life to the study of this region of Iran and um, he wrote that section of the Encyclopedia Iranica and he actually was willing to read a draft and he wrote me an email it was the most delightful email full of exclamation points, you know? You know, no, they would not eat trout in this region. They would carp. <laughs> and, no, no, the house would not have a straw roof. It would have a, a, um, a rush roof. And then my favorite was every single recipe. It would be like, you forgot the turmeric, 15 exclamation points. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a delight. Iana, what were some of the challenges that you found and you faced while you, was, while you were getting through the drafts and how many drafts and um, well, I'm fine. Jamie's gonna um, she's gonna kick me <laughs> in the table again because I know it's, it's gonna be worse next time. But I didn't do I didn't do an enormous amount of drafts. I I, I write longhand uh, in first draft and then um, w once I sort of have a, enough material longhand, then I type and typing is essentially my second draft and and then and then that's it. Certainly in edits once the book was was um, purchased and and went to, um, you know, it was about to be published and there was a lot of, a lot more kind of revising of things. But I think um, there were a couple of challenges. One of the biggest ones is because of the way that the book is structured, um, which is that th there are these sort of uh, very discrete 
stories, though they are not actually short stories. I think that would probably be incorrect to call them short stories because I'm not a good short story writer at all. Like I, you know, that my when I try to write a story, it kind of ends up spilling over the edges of itself and doesn't do what it ought to do at all. Um, and so, but they are somewhat autonomous. So, and there are, you know, there are ten of them. So toward the end, um, stamina became an enormous, enormous difficulty because they each have their own kind of narrative arc. So, so I think that was that was a big thing, and and I think the other thing is is really you know when you are, are writing a book about uh, about something that that you are understanding that you're sort of obsessed with, it really does kind of force you to have to to sort of use your your term to unlearn certain kinds of assumptions that you made. Uh, it, you know, the book as much as it you know is about the Great Migration, it is also about um, sort of the colorism that existed in people at that that existed among the, this community at that time. It's also enormously about class, and so um, you know you you find yourself kind of confronting your own biases, assumptions, etc., about class, about the way people speak, about diction, about all these kinds of things, um, in order to try and get at some kind of truth, which can be very challenging. I think mm -hmm. it was very challenging for me. Jamie, the veteran. <laughs> um, you know, I I tend to write sort of sparingly on the details. I'm kind of mo most interested in like emotional truths. Um, but with this book, uh, and, and I think attention really informs what I'm doing too. Um, and with this book, I really um, was most interested in, in kind of exploring compassion and approaching mm -hmm. all of my characters with compassion. And that was, that, and the work that I did on that was kind of research in a way, um, and trying to understand these characters in a really deep way, and kind of, and because they're all deeply flawed, mm. and um, figuring out how to forgive them and understand them. Uh, this is a you know, it's set where I grew up, and it is a Jewish family, but it's not my family. But they all felt incredibly familiar to me. Mm. The research, I mean, some of the research that I did was like, I was interested in the evolution of the Jewish. Um, community in in the suburbs of Chicago, and there's like one book that's on it called From Shtetl to Suburbs, and that's the that's like the grand. I mean, who knew, right? There's like one. I mean, but it's a thing, and um, and so I read that book and thought about, and it was basically about Jews never being satisfied with what they have, and they all have to go and create their own, you know, universe and their own synagogues and their own and their own. They keep breaking off into all these separate communities, and I was like, yeah, that sounds about right, you know. <laughs> We're kind of gripey. We want to do. We want to do it our way. Um, so it wasn't very surprising. It wasn't surprising, but there were little details that I could kind of pull out of that. But the other, the really big thing for me was um, my protagonist, Edie Middlestein, is uh, at the end of the book weighs 350 pounds, and the book is really all about her obsession with food. And I wanted to have an understanding. I'm obsessed with food, but I but most people the, are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, on either end of the spectrum, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so um, I wanted to have an understanding of that. And, and so I talked to a, a doctor um, who performs the kind of surgeries that she gets in the book. He's a vascular surgeon. And we talked about people who had weight issues. I, I talked to people, I have, you know, some friends who are um, obese. And we talked about what food meant to them. And, um, and that, was, that was probably the, the, the deepest research that I did was just trying to Get under, to get understanding. And then this characters just sort of took off once I understood them, mm. you know. It's, a, it's not really like a super plot-heavy book, but it's, it's definitely a character-driven book, but emotional truth can be plot in, uh, enough. Mm. Mm. 
Well, in the emotional truths in all the books were just, I mean, to me, that's why folks should write, quite frankly, to tell the truth. If you're not going to tell the truth, we readers know you're not telling the truth, right? Right, readers? Can you tell? I mean, it, it rings loudly and clearly. So I, I think it's, you know, job really well done. You know, I was always interested, and I am interested in music when I read all kinds of books. Now, I know Raquel... You're the original hip-hop baby. You, music is your thing, amongst other things. And in Dina's book, I mean, Bill Withers, the most unusual song, Tracy Chapman. It, it was so interesting to me the way music was in those two books, but not that much with Hattie and her crew, understandably so, I think. I don't know. Talk about music and how you write, what it means to you as you write or don't, I don't know, do you listen? But for your characters, what is that, what does it feel like? Mm. Me or? Dina. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think for my characters it has, I mean, I think for everyone music is one of those things that um, just kind of the most, the quickest way to get emotion out of someone and people go to in order to release their emotions and to open them. And, and I think, um, I mean, for me, it's just such a big part of the writing process and living. But um, in Iran, so much of the best music is illegal. And I think that's just, mm. I mean, what, 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 what's, what's shocking is to, is to have something be illegal that is so central to culture and to people and, um, you know, that is one of the most precious things they have. Iran is a very artistic um, country and uh, an artistic people with a history um, that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And to take away music, that is the one thing that mm. that strikes me. I mean, you might as well take away food. Um, and so people try to find it, and they won't let it go in all sorts of places. Mm -hmm. Underground, there is such a thriving music scene. Um, there, there, are, you know, there are places you can go in Iran to get. Uh, all kinds of music, you know, Iranian music, Iranian hip-hop and funk, you know, mm. and, and all of that stuff. And it's it's pretty wonderful. But in this book, I mean, I guess uh, the, the the longing for something that you can't have without much, much struggle is what I tried to bring out with the music. I mean, this, uh, this girl has... Um, a tape or two or three smuggled tapes that she pays way too much for and the same songs over and over uh, and the songs all kind of have to do with um, with love and loss and longing and all the things that are universal that you can hear in the music like that's why I picked Bill Withers I don't think you need to understand the words to know what he's saying I mean his, his voice is like umami you know <laughs> um, it's like musical you know um, anyway so I, I um, yeah, so th th that was, I guess, what I was trying to say, and that's what the role of music um, is, that it brings all of people's issues together, and it's an atrocious thing to make illegal. Mm -hmm. Raquel? <clears throat> well, music was very, very important to me because I was a, a um, music journalist before. I was a filmmaker and writer, and, um, <clears throat> and I, I was also a, a music editor at a magazine, and then, you know, I've worked with music all, all of my life, and my father was a musician, and many, many people in my family were. So I think music is one of those things that transcends, you know, age, race, sex, you know, everything. So um, when I write, I definitely um, listen to a lot of old classic salsa, a lot of Fania music, a lot of Johnny Pacheco and Hector Laveau. I, I um, listen to a lot of uh, Fela and David Bowie and all the musics that I was listening to at the time when I was growing up because it helped me evoke a lot of memories. Like, I sometimes listen to music and I can smell something or remember something or it's just, it's, it's powerful. So mm -hmm. I, I listened to a lot of music when I was, um, 
um, writing. And also, you know, when I was talking about how hip hop, um, when I w came back to um, New York City from the Dominican Republic in 81, I did talk about how hip hop, you know, this burgeoning scene, now what we see now today, you know, it's not, it was more holistic back then. It was more, you know, a, a, an outlet for rage. Um, it was the voice for, for, you know, young black Latino and, and, and disenfranchised white youth across, you know, New York City. And, um, and when I've traveled, you know, I made a film in Sierra Leone, West Africa called Bling, a planet rock where I took rappers from the States to Sierra Leone to see how the, um, how American hip hop intersected itself for better and worse into, into the conflict. And one thing that I, that I, you know, learned talking to people that were on both sides of the divide there and everywhere else I've traveled is kind of the same thing that I've learned growing up, that hip-hop was the voice. It was the thing that allowed them to get things out, to exorcise the demons and, you know, and deal with stuff. So, you know, that's why music uh, played a very important, uh, uh, it was almost a character in itself, um, you know, in, in my book. Mm -hmm. um, in mine, there, it's, it is, there's a, a one of Hattie's children's name is Floyd, and he's an he's an itinerant jazz musician. So music, obviously, in his life is is enormously important, and it's important um, not just because he finds it as a, a a sort of obvious mode of self-expression, but he also thinks of it as you know he's he's 22 when we meet him in his chapter, and he has grown up in Philadelphia, and he's grown up with a very um, specific set of of kind of class messages, do you know what I mean, about sort of where he and his family fit into the hierarchy of things. And he is also born in the North. And so when we meet him in the, in the book, he's gone down south as he's sort of, you know, going to juke joints and stuff like that, trying to make a name for himself as a trumpeter. And he feels a sense of alienation from the South, but he, and music, I think, becomes his way of connecting with the experience of the people who didn't leave the South. He doesn't know anything about it, and I don't think, he doesn't really understand their experience. You know, the North is, or the South is just sort of this kind of nightmare echo in his brain. You know, there these sort of people say, oh, there was a lynching, something horrible happened, and it sort of rips through their northern Philadelphia neighborhood, but like wildfire, the news of that. But it is not his experience. And he feels, I think, a certain kind of guilt because it's not his experience. And he, but he doesn't know what to do. He's a very young man. He doesn't know how to process it. So music is a, is a kind of um, common ground that he finds. And aside from him, though, you know, the, the title character, character of the book, Hattie, she is a woman who is very, very um, set, shall we say, on how she thinks her children should be raised. And she is very particular about what she thinks their futures could or could not be. She is very pragmatic woman, even though I think sort of um, her personality is is quite whimsical and 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 she's prone to sort of longing and all these kinds of things. But her kind of outward mode is this sort of you know super pragmatic general type. And she in in some ways sort of outlaws music. You know she doesn't want Floyd to be a musician. She has another child who's got some talent with the piano. She she bans the piano lessons because in her mind it is it is it is sort of the opposite of practicality and is the opposite of survival to encourage a child to do something so um, so impractical and so sort of flimsy as practicing as practicing music you know her 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 the entirety of her attention is i'm going to keep these children alive which means they have to eat 
and they have to be clothed and they have to walk down the street and they have to also be people who understand that the world is somewhat cruel and is going to receive them with cruelty. Hattie later sort of revises that, I think, by the end of the book. She, mm -hmm. she sort of sees some room for hope. But for much of her life, when she's a young woman raising her children, that is the way that she, that is the way that she sees things. And music seems to her a, a sort of a flimsiness. Mm -hmm. Jamie, music for you, for um, your characters? Well, in terms of process, writing process, um, I like to listen to Mozart, because I find it's good brain food. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for music that doesn't have any um, lyrics, mm. because the words kind of distract me. Or there's certain albums that I can, like I don't hear the words anymore and I can just kind of play them over and over again. Foreign music. What? Foreign music. Or um, sometimes you can get albums that are just like um, movie soundtracks, mm -hmm. just the scores, which is really good. Um, so it's pretty important to me, um, but then sometimes I just need like utter silence as well. Um, yeah, French French music is awesome. Yeah. It's really gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's really gorgeous and sexy. If you're you know writing a gorgeous and sexy scene, I suppose <laughs> <laughs> there's not a lot of gorgeous and sexy in here, but there's a little bit. Um, but there is mo most of my books contain a little bit of music. Sort of again, it's like a detail that can that put you in that mm -hmm. moment. Um, in this book, um, there's one song. It's that Black Eyed Peas song, um, the I Got a Feeling song. Bum, 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 you know, tonight's going to be a good night. So that sort of plays throughout the entire book because um, they're sort of building up to a, 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 a bar mitzvah scene at, at the end of the book. And I remember when I first heard that song, like in the chorus, he, say, he says L'chaim in the chorus. And I was like, oh, my God, he just made the ultimate bar mitzvah song. Like, <laughs> so, um, cause, so I was like, the man's a genius. And so I, I was, um, I mean, it had to have been calculated. I don't know. It's so weird that it just L'chaim pops. And I could just picture people in bar mitzvahs like, <laughs> so I just sort of slowly built it, you know, it just sort of keeps making its appearance in, in the book and then it comes at a climactic scene, there it is, and it's, you know, hopefully it worked where like, you you know, it sort of triggers those little moments all along and it makes you feel like you've built up to, I mean, it's such a frivolous song, but I think it's going to be around forever, forever. forever. we're never going to get like every year. And especially when I was writing the book, it was like on every freaking car commercial for like the whole time. And I was just like, all right, you're going in there. So it's, you know, it's another, it's another detail, I think, but, um, but it is a universal detail. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about the process, but for all of you, do you write in your head first and then get to your computer or your longhand? How does that work for you? I'm like Jay Z. I write it all in my head. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and Lil Wayne. He claim, he claims to write it in his head, but Jay Z is actually saying something. If you really listen, unlike Lil Wayne. Um, Very true. Well, Lil so, Wayne saying something, but it's no good yeah, for anybody. Exactly. Yeah. It's, just like, <laughs> it's like noise. Yeah. Um, I actually keep a notebook and a pen next to my bed because I, at least during the you know during this process. I'd wake up and three, four, five in the morning start writing. And I like writing longhand as well. Um, <clears throat> and then I write on little pieces of paper. Anytime I get a creative impulse, I make sure that I jot it down because it just leaves. So, um, you know, and then I do, yeah. I mean, like, like we all said, like these books were like writing themselves in, in our minds. I think that, yeah, definitely. I just have to say something about when I when I tried to do something like that because I um my my thoughts are such a jumble all the yeah. time it just never works out the way 
you know, it just doesn't ever come out in a suitable form. I rely on so many rounds of editing, but one, um, I heard this song that really describes so well when I tried to do that. Have you guys heard the song Aid Ma Klakshaw? Okay, the song, the song is called Aid Ma Klakshaw, and it means nothing, but the song is all about how this guy came up with this genius line, and he was going to write it down, and he woke up in the middle of the night with this like epiphany, and he wrote it down, and he fell back asleep, and the next morning when he read it, what it said was Aid Ma Klakshaw. <laughs> <laughs> this happens to me so often. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and then sometimes really? it's with frustrating bits I can't understand. It's like the perfect finale, you know. Anyway, so um, so what I've taken to doing is just, you know, take big chunks of time where I write and then try to sit down and edit and hope whatever comes at those moments where I can't will come again and in a more, you know, uh, usable form. But some, sometimes it just doesn't. Right. I like writing on the subway also. Um, I know somebody who wrote his novel on the subway. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Who? The whole novel? Who my brother it? did that. Is it my brother? Kenji Jasper. He's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Kenji. He wrote his a novel in a, in a, in a, you know, on the subway. I think there's a lot of inspiration there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Carry your Perel. <laughs> you know, while I was reading all the books, and it's probably me, uh, I always tell people I survived Catholic school, y'all, because <sighs> nothing against the Catholics exactly. per se, but those nuns were crazy where I went to school. I feel the same way. So, the same way. you know, when, you're, when I'm reading, here we have the Christians who are faking Islam in Dina's book. In Jamie's book, you have this one goes to this temple, this synagogue, and oh my God, you did that to the family, so now you can't go there anymore. Right. And Hattie, Hattie is like cold blood dead. I love, I'm not going to give it away, at, toward the end of the book, with her experience with her granddaughter at yeah, church. I read that a few times because I yeah. said, damn, Hattie, get it, girl. <laughs> wow. <That's true. laughs> and Raquel. This spirituality, like, who are you really? And are we these bodies? Or are we really souls in these bodies? I mean, there's, there's so much going on with folks may call, you know, voodoo, which I have no problem with, but lots of different things. It actually has, I mean, it's, I, I mentioned, you know, Santeria, I mentioned yes. Yoruba religion, I mentioned, I mentioned, I actually interview a rabbi, yes. Rabbi Dov Bear Pinson, do you know him? I, you know, study You Google. don't know Rabbi Pinson? What's up? He's the... He, <laughs> Rabbi Pinson is the man. He is no, but he's he's like the Rakim of like reincarnation. This guy is the man. Um, and I interviewed him about Gilgal Neshamat, which is uh, reincarnating souls in, in Kabbalah. And I also studied um, uh, Sufi um, Islam for this book. But everybody always it always comes back to voodoo. Even no, no, though no, I don't no. even talk about no, that in there. No, no, no. I, I couldn't get through all the things you went through in that book. I mean, really. But what I'm saying is. This whole thing with religion or lack of or right, spirituality, right, yeah. it's, it's so deep and heavy for us as we walk this plane. But yeah. for you four and all these characters, talk about that. Um, well, all, all of the characters all have different relationships with their faith. So, um, I mean, I... Um, I mean, I was born and raised Jewish, and my and um, and definitely identify with culturally being a Jew. But I don't actually. I mean, it is. I was just saying to Dina, it is the great irony of my life that as I tried so hard to escape my claustrophobic Jewish family, 
the greatest success of my career is due to <laughs> run, the run, run, but you sure can't right. hide. <laughs> um, I spent a lot of time talking to Jews now. It's fascinating. Um, but, but you know, I, I did go through a period of rejection. Um, my parents were born in uh, during the World War II. My um, my father was actually my father's father was actually fighting. Um, in, in during World War II, and so they, he wasn't there for his birth, and um, and so we grew up, you know, they grew up with the specter of the Holocaust. It was very real, and it was very important to that generation that you 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 maintain your Jewish identity, and you and and because it could it's something that could be taken away from you at any moment. And I'm sort of and I'm the generation after, so it's like you know I have an understanding that it's a real thing and that it's happened, but it doesn't it didn't have the same impact on me. Um, and so I, writing this book, I sort of started to understand that. Um, I wanted to write about people who were from that generation and why, and why Ju Judaism was important to them. And then the generation after, some people in the book rejected it. Some people in the book say, you know, it's just, a part of, a, it's just about being part of a community, which I get. And, and, and so this ended up being a really great opportunity for me, writing this book, to explore what parts of my, you know, faith, um, or I should say my you know, my religion are, I wanted to take with me and use and, and what parts I didn't need anymore. And I came out the other side of it, like, in a like sort of in, in, in a better place, like, mm -hmm. you know, more connected with it in a way that I had no idea I wanted to be. I didn't know it was, you know, there until, and then I was like, wow, this is a really cool chance to, like, really think this through, so. Ayana? Um, well, I think Hattie is, is, I wouldn't call she's not an atheist, but she certainly her stance on the whole situation is in terms of of as far as God goes, he's I think he's out there, but he's got nothing to do with me and I've got nothing to do with him. That's her that's her sort of basic understanding of the whole thing. And but I think that what she does find is sort of toward the end of her life, she had not been a, you know, she was not a church going woman, yeah, you know, except for, I don't know, Easter or something like that, you know. But um she was not a church going woman at all. She didn't necessarily encourage her or discourage her children from being it just wasn't sort of a part of their of their lives really. And but by the end of the book she becomes a church going person. Uh, quite devoutly church-going, but not because she believes in God so much, but because she believes in the sort of ritual of the church. She she finds an enormous amount of comfort in, in the hymns and the stained glass windows and the sermons and the passages in the Bible. She finds it to be deeply comforting, though she doesn't really believe it, per se. And I think, um, you know, it's it's it's... Though I didn't really realize it at the time, it's sort of like you were saying, you find yourself writing out your own preoccupations and your own questions and things like that. I grew up enormously religiously, um, Pentecostal actually, um, which is not my belief at all anymore. But but certainly it left uh, an indelible mark on me. And there is there is much about about faith that I question, that I think about, and I think that one of the things that I uh, one of the places where I, where I arrived. Through I think writing writing Hattie was that though I may not necessarily believe in a, a, a sort of Christian doctrine per se, it those it asks questions that are 
the closest to the way that I ask questions. So Hattie sort of gets to this place where, you know, in the last chapter of the book, the, the preacher gives a sermon on Job, and Job, of course, is all about suffering, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, that it doesn't answer her question. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't sort of say, well, why have we gone through all this? You know, at the end of the book, her children have gone through so much, she's gone through so much. It doesn't answer the question, but it poses the question in a very beautiful way that makes sense to her. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is in some ways a sort of a, a mirror of my own relationship to the to the kind of um, not to the Christianity that I grew up with, but to to a kind of Christianity in general, which is I think that the way that certain questions are posed through theology is profoundly beautiful. Do I necessarily agree with the answers? Maybe not, but the questions are really lovely. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think just religion in my book is again, once again, goes through the lens of, you know, prohibition and having it be, um, you know, illegal to be a certain thing or believe a certain thing. I think there's a there's a line in my novel that comes from real life um, where the, the main character's mother uh, tells her, and every time I read this at readings, people laugh. It's very funny. They think it's a joke. Um, but she says, you know, don't worry. And because of hijab and the Islamic Republic's requirement that you cover your hair, she says, you know, don't worry. Jesus loves women's loose hair, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, the people laugh. But, you know, my mother actually used to say, this to me too and it was a great comfort to think you know it wasn't so much about the religion or the institution but about this like one man who you know really just loves you for how whoever you are and I thought I think um well mm -hmm. I too don't you know I guess follow the same religion that I did as a kid the difference for me with Iran's version of Christianity, which I've depicted in the book, and um, the Christianity that I encountered when, after we left, I um, moved to Oklahoma, was just this this very, very um, kind of desperate clinging to this one man, um, you know, as a way out of this. You know, this it's not it's not so much about this entire institution or set of beliefs, but it's about the fact that like there there is someone credible or someone you know wonderful who who doesn't. Um, who doesn't believe these things that are imposed on us and this huge burden that's put on our shoulders. And then, you know, then when I went to Oklahoma, I experienced a much, much different version of it, which was about, you know, the rituals and the, the, the set of rules and, and dogmas and things that I didn't find so attractive at all. Um, but I think, you know, another thing that's inter interesting to me is the difference between the kinds of Christians that you find in Iran who are born Christians from Assyrian and Armenian backgrounds and um, the Christians who converted from Islam because to convert from Islam to any other religion is a moral crime and punishable by death and so we uh, when we left the country my mother who was a convert to Christianity um, you know she was in jail she was about to be executed um, and that's when we escaped and so to me it's really really fascinating this um, this idea that you know because somebody found their way to another religion um, you know, that, that it would be okay for even a neighbor to kill them. They wouldn't have to go through any kind of due process or anything like that. So um, anyway, so I, I tried to kind of, what I tried to depict is that fear and that clinging and that, <coughs> that idea that, you know, I guess there, there is something bigger um, to struggle for, um, you know, beyond the religious, I guess. And um, I think my book, which actually just came out four days ago, which is why probably many people here don't have it, um, but I hope we, you pick it up. Um, we have a bookseller. So. Oh, okay, good. That's right. Um, <laughs> so it's less about actual organized religion, because I, I do personally believe that religion is kind of an opiate. It's kind of a, of the masses. It kind of keeps you you know, deaf, dumb, and blind in a way. And um, it's more about spirituality. And I had, you know, since I was very young, I mean, I was raised in, in my formative years by my maternal grandmother. And for her, feminism was religion. Mm -hmm. Not so much being, you know, 
worshiping, you know, the Jesus that didn't look like us. Um, and when I moved back with my father, he wasn't religious at all. I don't. I think he was a lot like Hattie, where he just it wasn't. It didn't really work for him. You know, he's very pragmatic. He wasn't religious. And when I went to parochial school because it was just the better school in the neighborhood, I just found it to be completely. Um, it just have I have huge problems with uh, Catholic schools. And my actual the school that I went to is closing this year, and I think it's a great thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I, you know, I really felt like the education that I that I received there taught me to every time I looked in the mirror, you know, want I, I you know, like I didn't go through this, but many, 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 many of my classmates did, where you know they would hate to see the parts of themselves that looked indigenous or looked African. They only exalted the parts of themselves that was you know, quote unquote, American, and for them, American means you know, a white American. Um, and to me, American really looks like, you know, the indigenous communities here more so than, you know, the white communities here. Um, so I, I really feel like, you know, it kind of teaches you to have not the best self-esteem. So I, I have a really huge problem with Christianity and the way it's taught. And, you know, we, for example, in Dominican Republic, we have Barth uh, Bartholomew de las Casas who was the first ordained priest in the Americas and he was ordained in the in Santo Domingo and he was a slave owner and he was you know he was the one who said let's stop enslaving the you know American in, the indigenous people and start importing Africans and then he was like oh shit I really messed up and I really shouldn't have said that because oh my god they have souls oh but but then it took him another 20 years of having slaves to figure that out so I just feel like it's such a hypocrisy you know, in the church and then going to Ghana and going to, to Accra and seeing, you know, just seeing all of that and seeing how religion and Christianity was used there um, to divide people. I just still, I think it kind of holds us back. I think it's kind of shackling. Mm -hmm. And that's just my own personal opinion. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nobody shy up here. No, no. And, that, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, folks are here to, to, to hear what, what you feel and what you really believe, not, you know, it's this kind of panel, not the other kind of panel. Um, the messages in your book, was there something or something specific that you wanted to get across to people as you were writing? I'm always curious about that because, you know, we, we read all kinds of books and you, the reader, me, the reader, we get what we get because we walk in the shoes we walk in. But I'm, I'm always curious about the writer. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked a little bit about this earlier that just the intention to me is just the most important thing. So I was sitting down every day and thinking about, as I said, you know, being compa compassion and, and sympathy and understanding and and. I don't have any of, of the answers, you know, um, on how, you know, I wanted to write about when you have a person in your life that you can, that um, is sick and not take caring, not taking care of themselves, and how, you know, if they have an addiction or they're in a bad relation, whatever it can be, anything, mm -hmm. and how you how you talk to that person, how you communicate, and when I ended up sort of like articulating a lot of the possible conversations or non-conversations that you could have, but I don't necessarily know what the right one is because I'm not like a therapist or, you know, like I'm just a writer. I'm I'm a deeply flawed person myself, so I. But I. So are the therapists. Right. <laughs> but they sort of, you know, know how to. I don't know. I haven't been in therapy, but I hear good things about therapy. So <laughs> I'm not saying that it's not good, and that's another panel, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, or, or any, or like a religious 
leader or any anything like that. We're people who are sort of known for giving advice or ha or having wisdom. But I'm but I'm a, a student of of people and 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 seeing how they talk mm -hmm. to each other and. Um, and so I think the one thing that I wanted people to take away from my book was to at least have the conversation, mm -hmm. to start to have the conversation with the person in your life who isn't taking care of themselves, or if you're having that conversation with yourself, which is also a possibility. Um, I, was it you? Somebody I said, oh, I have EDs. I know 30 EDs. Was that, mm, yeah. was that you? Like, but I, that has happened to me so much since I've, I've, you know, I've been touring a lot for this book, and I keep meeting people who say to me, I have an ED in my life. I, you know, I know, or I'm a little bit of, and so that was, I mean, that's like the greatest reward of all is when people, was when you're having, because a book to me is a conversation that you're having with, it's a conversation I'm having with myself, it's a conversation I'm having with, you know, this um, imagined readership. And so then when the book goes out there and people want to have the conversation back with you, that is the, gr that's the greatest, that's more than you could hope for in this, in this life, really. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's interesting. I, I was really jealous when Jamie was like, I have intention every day. I'm like, oh, I don't have enough intentions. <laughs> but, um, but I don't have <laughs> any hobbies. <so> yeah. <laughs> I don't either. That just means that there's just there's just a lack, you know? but um, but but certainly as I as I wrote, I, I do think that one of the things that I was that I was really interested in was creating obviously believable characters that are real fleshed out people on the page, and that that was first and foremost my goal. And the reason I say that is because I people the book has been I've been very fortunate to to sort of the book has gotten a lot of attention, so people are always saying, oh, it's about the Great Migration, oh, it's about the black experience, oh, it's about, but it's not. It's about these people. Mm -hmm. It's about this family, right. specifically. They are black people, but they are not defined solely by their, by their racial identity. You know, the, the idea, I think, for me was to write uh, a book that had a kind of pre-social, uh, pre-civil rights movement setting with a post-civil rights sensibility, which is to say that it is possible to be a black person and to not entirely be defined by race exclusively. And so I wanted these people to be fully fleshed out human beings who were allowed to have their problems and their sorrows and their angers and their et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but who were first and foremost a family. You know, it's, it, the book isn't a kind of definitive story of any, you know, of, of a black experience, I don't think at all. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have the luxury of being able to write a book like that because of, because Toni Morrison and, and Ralph Ellison and, and Alice Walker and I could go on and on and on came before me and did a whole lot of really heavy lifting so that I don't have to. I don't have to write a definitive black experience story. I can write about a family, which seems to me also the scope of the Great Migration and the scope of the Civil Rights Movement, which was a, a black humanity that was allowed to be human in sort of all of its fullness. Um, and I think that's probably mostly what I was trying to do. Okay. Can you ask one more time what the question was? Um, your message. Now, your book. I'm like lost yeah, this in what is, this is, <laughs> Of course, this is your life. Yeah. Portions of your life. Yeah. Your story up to this point. Yeah. Because, you know, y'all a bunch of youngins up here, you know? It's not like, you know, you have 60 some odd, 70 some odd years, but the life up to where you are. What's, right. what's the message? The message is... Um, you can well self self introspection. Mm -hmm. Also, identity is fluid, 
and you should never allow anybody to ident to you know you should never allow anyone to 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 impose an identity on you, and to unlearn as much as possible mm -hmm. what you were taught and relearn. And when you relearn, you'll see how similar we all are to one another. It's like a global community. Ashe, Dina. Well, I think um, I kind of I had two aims. There's um, first some things that were universal that I wanted to explore, and then some things that were very Iranian. Um, so I'll start with the Iranian because it's simpler to explain. But um, the the image that there is out there in the media and in the Western world about Iran and Iranians for me is troubling. It's very troubling. There's two uh, sets of images. One is the political, you know, the the horrible president and the embarrassing Islamic Republic and the all of the horrors that have gone on for 30 years and even more. Um, and then there is this new culture that's springing up that people are starting to see in the West, which is the California Iranians that are so materialistic. I don't know if you guys have seen this awful reality show, Shaws of Sunset. Those people make me want to throw my TV out the window, but um, they are they are a tiny little fraction of Iranian culture. Um, actual Iranian culture is thousands and thousands of years old, and um, there's just so much there in terms of you know poetry and music and literature and and architecture and cooking and you know it's just a very very rich culture. And the way to experience it is to go into the homes of people in Iran and specifically in the villages um, and experience an, an Iran that has not changed since the revolution. And Iran that that goes back much much further and people who are undisturbed like the villages in the north are undisturbed and they haven't I haven't seen a book recently that um, that shows that side of Iranian culture so that was part of my aim and then um, just branching from that to the universal I this um, one of the things that I explored a lot um, in this book that is a huge part of Iranian culture is storytelling and the truth and the relationship between truth and lies and the relationship that people have with stories and and lying and Iranians have such an interesting relationship with lying in that they do it all the time um, so but you know lying is part of the culture it's it's you know you there's this thing called taruf for example and um, which is the idea that you don't you, you offer something three times even if you don't want to offer it and then you reject something three times even if you want to accept it. So for example, I could say, you know, like, Ayana, here, have my coffee. And then you would say no. And I'd say, no, no, really, have the coffee. And you'd say, no, no, really, I don't want it. And then if I really, truly am, am offering you a, the coffee, I would offer it the third time. And then you could then accept it. Right. But the first two, but then, wow. but then the first, but then if I stop after twice, you know, like, then you know it's fake. Now, the pro, the problem this leads to is that, is that people have gotten so crazy about this that they start offering things like their daughters and, and you know, because, because you know that it's going to be rejected the first couple you of hope. times. You hope. It'll, well, yeah, and then you do this with an American and it causes problems. Um, but, <laughs> but the thing is, it, all these different kinds of lies are woven into the culture and, and I wanted to ask the question of why. I mean, I think it's a way, storytelling, creating a, another reality is a way of coping, it's a way of dealing and, and there are things that I think are wonderful ways of coping with realities, um, and storytelling is one of them. Um, and and so kind of I, I, I explore that. One of the things I've never seen adults do in the Western world is tell each other stories that are not true. So adults will sit down and gossip, tell stories that are that are that are true, um, you know, that have happened. But they never, but they never um, make up stories for each other, and Iranians do, and I think that's an interesting way to relate to each other and to deal with a situation, and, and I wanted to show that. Sorry about the whatever that was. <laughs> um, 
Oh, it was your Me mic. Too. I don't know who it is, but I don't need a mic, really. Uh, <laughs> Nikki Giovanni said, maybe I shouldn't feel sorry for myself, but the more I understand women, the more I do. What would Hattie and Edie and your feminista grandmother and Saba say about that? Can you read it one more time? Sure. Maybe I shouldn't feel sorry for myself, but the more I understand women, the more I do. Uh -uh. <laughs> I guess uh, I'm just saying you guys created so these folks. It's like asking, what is who is God? What is yeah, exactly. God? It's like, but it's such a broad... people think about people think about who is God all the time. So but to answer it like in a like, give me sound by it. <laughs> guess what? That's that, a very deep question. I feel like we should confer back here. And I know. <laughs> we'll huddle. We'll have a huddle. <laughs> All you writers up here that think in your head, come on now, write something. <laughs> I mean, Hattie is, I, I, I think that she would think that that was a ridiculous statement, actually. I okay. Don't, I don't think that she, not, and I'm not saying that because I think it's a ridiculous statement or because it is a ridiculous statement, but the character in this book would Which think Which is why I asked about statement. the character in yeah. the book, specifically. Yeah, she, she wouldn't, I, I don't think, I mean, she's a pretty pragmatic woman um, and she's also quite stoic and she's also quite iron-willed I think I mean the, the thing about Hattie is that I was also trying to avoid sort of stereotypes about a kind of like um, uh, rigid and inflexible black women's strength or women's strength in general you know this idea that everybody's grandmother and they sort of didn't feel anything and they just kind of you know went through and they made dinner and they made sure everybody ate and they didn't have their feelings and they weren't scared or afraid or angry etc cetera, etc cetera. um she's pretty flawed and she's pretty sort of broadly human you know and she certainly is strong but her strength is um kind of mingled you know which i think is the case with strength um but i don't think that she sees herself or the world she, she she's also a fairly um she's kind of a narcissist really you know she's she's pretty um she she's and and she comes from a very insular um community you know they're they're very interested in themselves and they're very interested in the way that they have sort of shaped things and they're not you know she doesn't think a lot about about the the larger world in in, in many ways mm -hmm. um she's very concerned with sort of her own children and her own neighborhood and her own sort of light skinnedness and her own class and 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 the classes of this neighborhood she's not she's not really interested in that much more beyond mm -hmm. that so a whole a kind of a notion i think of, of anything even like feminism would have seemed to her i think um silly and self-indulgent okay um, well, I mean, Edie is pretty strong, tough. Early on in the book, she's sort of, her mother is a lioness, described as a lioness, and she's a lioness in training. She talked, she's at some point as, thinks of herself or as a queen. So she's a pretty uh, powerful person, but she genera generationally is just a little bit off of like being, like she's just a little older than being a hippie. She mm -hmm. kind of missed, but she knows that she's supposed to be a, a feminist. And she does, she, uh, is feminist in, in action in a lot of ways. Um, she is also kind of stoic, but more she's stoic because she's in denial. Mm. So she's got a lot of walls up, 
so it seems like she's sort of handling everything and she kind of handles everybody else's problems but um, but really she you know she handles everything else but the thing that she needs to handle within herself mm-hmm. um, but feminism is sort of like kind of mentioned a little bit here and there in the book. I actually had somebody yell at me the other day at a reading because, like, kind of angry, and she was like, you should have talked more about feminism in this book. And I was like, hmm. but sometimes you can show things without having to say what it is. Right. I have no problems with my feminism. I'm feminist. Like, I'm 100% there. So, you know, you, I, 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 feel, I feel that she is, uh, she is a feminist character. I guess that wasn't really your question. No, but that's cool. Yeah. I want to hear the quote again. What? I want to hear the quote again. The quote is, maybe I shouldn't feel sorry for myself, but the more I understand women, the more I do. That makes sense in in my family. I'm writing about um, real characters, so it's a a little bit more difficult for me to, you know, talk about it, but whatever. We're here. We're family, right? So, um, (laughs) So... my grandmother was, you know, a feminist, and uh, when she was um, living during the, the dictatorship that we had in my in the Dominican Republic for Rafael uh, um, Trujillo, right? And he was a tyrant. He was terrible. And he actually, she was put on the this, the enemy of the state list as a teenager. But at the same time, my grandmother was a woman who, you know was very pragmatic as well and some of her children would say even unfeeling like a Hattie um, because she was all about feminism but I you know looking at her life from where I'm sitting it's because you know she was also just a woman who was scorned a woman who had a philandering kind of a weak husband and you know was trying to reconcile loving women loving her country loving her society loving you know uh, progress with having what she felt probably is a weak character which, and I think that happens a lot with feminists. Mm-hmm. And a lot of feminist writers I know, they usually have that kind of, um, in their personal lives, have that kind of thing going on. And um, my mother, who's my birth mother, who's another uh, central figure in, in this book, I think wouldn't even get it <laughs> because she's such a narcissist. Um, <laughs> you know, I think she'd think she was, you know, um, I don't think she would see herself in that. Mm-hmm. Did she, wait, did she read this book? Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I sent it to her. No I hadn't seen her 15 years before. Um, this book brought me back to her. And then after I interviewed her, which I detail in this book, I never saw her again. Mm-hmm. And it's totally fine. By the way, I'm like 100 pages into this book. It's so good. You have to get it. Thank you. I mean, all of our books. But like that book. Thank I you. Mean, yeah, get all of our books. Yet, it's really good. Thank you. Okay, and Dana? So, um, well, I don't know. I don't know the context of this quote, and I'm curious about it because it makes me wonder if it doesn't mean the opposite of what we think it means in that, you know, I, I was asking myself when you, as you guys were talking, do other women make me feel sorry for myself and what could that possibly mean? And I think maybe um, in some way it means that the, you know, women that are out there are often underestimated and so much uh, more than we think that they are. So that when you put yourself up against them or, when, you know, when you think of yourself as having done something great or whatever and you see the women around you and you think, you know, actually, no, I, I, I am not so great. Um, you know, there, there's just so, um, I guess, so much out there in womankind that I've left unexplored. I don't know. Maybe that's what she means. But I think in terms of self-pity and things like that, this is actually a big theme in my book that, um, you know, in the worst of times, um, these characters are people who um, 
you know, make the best of the situation and are, are strong and, and take it upon themselves to, um, to claim joy, you know, instead of, instead of just, uh, you know, sitting around suffering. Um, and, I, and, and that comes up a lot. You know, the, the Saba's mother, who's lost from the very first pages of the book and doesn't appear except in memory, uh, is constantly telling her, you know, don't be like, you know, a sad little match girl. You know, go and do things for yourself. And there are things that you can use, um, you know, you can rely on for coping, like storytelling and community and the warmth of uh, friends. And there's things that you can't, you know, um, like, like, you know, the love of a man or, you know, your particular, you know, place um, in, in, in society and the world. And, and uh, you know, there, it's about relying on yourself and it's about being strong. So I would say um, the idea of feeling sorry for oneself for, for their position as a woman, it's a, in Iran, modern day Iran, it's a kind of place where you could really do that. But um, I think my characters don't. Um, and that was part of the point. Okay. <laughs> my last question before I open it up to the floor is, answer this. Remarkable readers are. Oh. <laughs> what did you say? I, I was like, you stopped. Okay. I want you to. I want you to. Mm -hmm. Fill in the blank. Whatever. Remarkable readers are. Curious about the world around them. Okay. Cool. Interact with the books that they read. Not passive relationships. No right or wrong answer here. Diligent, like kind of keep reading. You know, you have to just sort of keep. Like I have a lifetime relationship with it. Happier. Okay. Cool. As you can see, these are serious thinking sisters here. My goodness. I mean, oh my God, it's a test. <laughs> Any questions? I know you guys have a few questions of folks, but a round of applause for these fabulous panelists. Yes. Oh. Would you like them to? Oh, no. Would anybody no. care? Would you guys? Do you guys have anything that you might want to read a little bit of? I see. I was trying not to read that. You know what? I kind of don't because my okay. part one that's and part fine. two are so different from each other. I don't want. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, I can, but no one else is going. If no one else is good. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a no. Thank you. No I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Oh, wait. I'll do a little bit. I'll just read the very beginning. You have a taker. Okay. So, uh, and the way the book is set up is like, you know, two thirds of the book are from family members' perspectives, and then a third of the book shows Edie in retrospect. So, 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and aughts. So, you sort of, oh, I said that already, but um, so I'm just going to read the very first chapter, which is when she's like five. Oh, just a minute of it. Okay. This is Edie at 62 pounds. How could she not feed their daughter? Little Edie hers in age five, not so little. Her mother had noticed this. How could she miss it? Her arms and legs, once peachy and soft, had blossomed into something that surpassed luscious. They were disarmingly solid. A child should be squeezable. She was a cement, a cement block of flesh. She breathed too heavy like someone's gassy old uncle after a meal. She hated taking the stairs. She begged to be carried up the four flights to their apartment. Her mother, aching, her back, the groceries, a bag of books from the library. I'm tired, said Edie. We're all tired, said her mother. Come on, help me out here. She handed Edie the bag of books. You pick these out. You carry them. 
Her mother, not so thin herself, nearly six feet tall, with a powerhouse of a body, she was a lioness who had a shimmer and aurora to her thick, majestic self. Majestic self. She believed she was a queen among women. Still, she was damp, and she had a headache, and the stairs weren't fun, she agreed. Her, should I keep going? I don't know. Her husband, Edie's father, always took the stairs two at once in a hurry to get to the next place. He was tall with a thick head of dark, spongy hair and had long, lanky, pale limbs, and his chest was so thin it was practically translucent, his ribs protruding, watery blue veins threaded throughout. After they made love, she would lazily watch the skin that covered his heart bob up and down, fast, slower, slow. At meals, he ate and ate. He was carnal, primal about food. He staked out territory, leaning forward on the table, one arm resting around his plate, the other dishing the food into his mouth, not stopping to chew or breathe. But he never gained a pound. He had starved on his long journey from Ukraine to Chicago eight years before and had never been able to fill himself up since. Mm. I'll stop there. Yes. Thank you. You want to read? Well, I'll read a bit if Diana promises to read. All right. Okay. Damn it, then I'll have to read. <laughs> <laughs> Should I go? Uh, Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did I throw you under the bus? No, no, I love your book. All right, I'll read um, a section that I should explain. This is in the voice of an old village woman who watches over Saba after she's um, her her sister and her mother have disappeared. And her name is Khanum Basir. Khanum means Mrs. in Farsi. And this section is called Besame Mucho. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Lately, I've been thinking about goodbyes. In the year after the loss of Mahtab and her mother, Saba began to rebel in school, and so her father sent her less and less, calling more often on tutors, men and women from Rasht who had once lived in America. They didn't teach her from books, but also ex they didn't just teach her from books, but also explained all the slang from her TV programs and how to have a fast ear in English. Sometimes she would go to school when there was a test, and even then she caused trouble. Wearing a brown matinee, the ugly triangular-shaped school scarf, instead of a gray one as required, or wearing it backward, leaving the neck and ears exposed, or drawing fake tattoos with red marker on her own skin. She would come home and hide the angry letters from teachers. I told her, it's no use writing a camel back bent over. That is to say, if it's obvious what you're doing, don't make a pathetic effort to hide it. She was so lost then. One day when the, from the Hafezi's kitchen, I overheard Saba crying in the sitting room because of some small thing, a program that no longer aired because of the new government. She grumbled and chewed her nails over it, adding so much meaning. What was left for her now? So many of her favorite things slipping away with each passing day. As I peered around the corner, I could see on her blotchy face that she was thinking of Mahtab, all the dreams they had together. Look at them now, the Hafezi twins. What has become of them and their grand future, their mother's plans? When her father got home, Saba had fallen asleep on a cushion in the corner of the room. Tears dried to her face. He looked bewildered. He took off his jacket and put on a very famous song by Vegan. I can see that to this day, Saba has a special love for Vegan, this handsome Christian artist who brought Western guitar music to Iran and whose first song was called Mahtab. The song Agha Hafezi played that day was Marabebus, or Give Me a Kiss. 
If you ask anyone around here what the two most beloved Iranian songs are, they will name that one along with the Sultan of Hearts. There is a story that says the words of Marabebus were written by one of the Shah's prisoners as a father's goodbye to his daughter just before he was executed. Kiss me for the last time, the doomed man says. May God keep you for all time. Saba told me once, when she was a few years older, that this is just another pretty Iranian lie, because the song is exactly like a Spanish tune with the same name. <laughs> Sometime later, Saba began to wake. She must have heard her father singing this haunting, wistful melody over and over to himself. He was sitting on the cushions around the living room floor, staring at nothing, thinking. I peeked in every now and then. There was no bottle or hookah around, but he was in another world. Then Saba crawled over to him and he pulled her onto his lap. He sang the words in her ear and they sat together for a long time, her head on his chest, humming a father-daughter song. My spring has passed, all pasts have passed, now I will go toward the fates. Afterward, her father told her the story behind the song. This is how all fathers feel about their daughters and only their daughters. It is the same across time and the universe, and no mothers or sons or cousins or any other pair can replicate the hopes that lie beneath it. Isn't it funny how some memories are lost until one day they decide on their own to come back? I remember now that it was on that day that I first heard Saba tell a story about Mahtab, just a few words that made Agha Hafezi chuckle, about Mahtab's plane ride to America. She did it for her father to give his lost other daughter back to him. I'm taking you out of that school, he said. It's a waste, all the Arabic lessons. Better to focus on making you fluent in English. I'll take you to say goodbye tomorrow. Goodbyes are such luxuries. Some people pine for them for entire lifetimes. So I also, I just wanted, I was watching as, as these two were reading beautifully. I've never seen people sign um, the sign translations for people reading fiction. It's yeah. so lovely. I think we should give these women a hand. They're amazing. <laughs> I've never seen that before. I mean, I've seen it in talks and stuff, but not during readings. It's really lovely. Anyway, um, okay, so uh, I'm going to read just very briefly from uh, the first chapter of the book. In this chapter, Hattie, the title character, is 17 years old. She has twins. They are, she's just come from Philadelphia to Georgia two years, from Georgia to Philadelphia two years before that when she uh, was 15 years old, and then within two years she is married and she has... Uh, she has twins, and uh, the, the place where I'm going to read, the, her twins are very, very ill. They have they have pneumonia, and they're they're really sort of struggling to to, to breathe. And she's the the entire chapter, the scene that I'm going to read, takes place in a bathroom that she sort of has um, turned on the hot water, and she's been in there for hours trying to sort of give these babies steam to help them to help them to breathe. And she's also given them ipecac, which was a thing that would have been used in the 1920s when this when this uh, when this particular chapter is set. Oh, the, the children's names are Philadelphia and Jubilee. Hattie's babies burned brightly. Their fever spiked. Their legs wheeled. Their cheeks went red as suns. Hattie took the bottle of Ipecac from the medicine cabinet and dosed them. They coughed too hard to swallow. The medicine dribbled from the sides of their mouths. Hattie wiped her children's faces and gave them more Ipecac and massaged their heaving chests. 
Her hands moved expertly from task to task. Her hands were quick and capable, even as Hattie wept and pleaded. How her babies burned, how they wanted to live. Hattie had thought, when given over to such thoughts, that her children's souls were thimbles of fog, wispy and ungraspable. She was just a girl, only 17 years longer on the earth than her children. Hattie understood them as extensions of herself and loved them because they were hers and because they were defenseless and because they needed her. But she looked at her babies now and saw that the life inside them was muscled and mighty and would not be driven from them. Fight, Hattie urged, like this, she said, and blew the air in and out of her own lungs in solidarity with her children to show them it was possible, like this, she said again. Hattie sat cross-legged on the floor with Jubilee balanced in the crook of one knee and Philadelphia in the other. She patted their backs to bring the phlegm up and out. The baby's feet overlapped in the triangle of space between Hattie's folded legs. Their energy was flagging, and they leaned against her thighs. If she lived to be 100, Hattie would still see, as clearly as she saw her babies slumped before her now, her father's body collapsed in the corner of his smithy the two white men from town walking away from his shop without enough shame to quicken their pace or hide their guns. Hattie had seen that, and she could not unsee it. In Georgia, the preacher had called the North a New Jerusalem. The congregation said he was a traitor to the cause of the Southern Negro. He was gone the next day on a train to Chicago. Others, too, were going, disappearing from their shops or the fields, their seat on the church pew occupied at Sunday service and empty by Wednesday prayer meeting. All of those souls escaped from the South were at this very moment glowing with promise in the wretched winters of the cities of the North. Hattie knew her babies would survive, though they were small and struggling. Philadelphia were already Philadelphia and Jubilee were already among those luminous souls, already the beginning of a new nation. I kind of opened it up, and wherever I landed is what I'm going to read. <laughs> so I'm like, what am I? Okay. Um, Ercilia. Okay, so. This is a snapshot of life in the early 80s, New York City, uptown, with my father and uh, my stepmother, and a little bit of the backstory is I'm going, I'm attending St. Thaddeus, which is really another school. It's closing, so the real name of the school is St. Jude. It's closing. I can't, I can't <laughs> sue me. And, um, and um, Ercilia is my father's uh, mother, who I barely knew, and she was kind of like, interesting character, very, very religious. Um, and I'm just going to read a couple pages. Okay. Where Celia is more religious than Pope John Paul II, Papi isn't at all. He makes me go to church with his and mommy's old friends, Miguel and Clara, and their spoiled ass daughter, Camerecita, only because they pressured him to let their pastor work his magic for the salvation of my soul. Otherwise, I don't think Papi believes in or cares much for God. He falls asleep in the pews, just like I do on the rare occasions when he meets his Eclara's church, snoring right through the homily and the passing of the money tray. My holy rolling Sunday, spent playing truth or dare with the boys and flashing our prepubescent tetas, pussies and tiny dicks in Carmencita's pink bedroom after church, are short-lived. Like Papi, I'm not, sh I'm not so sure God exists. He, I am told God is a he, never visits me. 
I've seen spirits in my dreams ever since I was a little girl living with mommy on Seaman Avenue, but they look more like Indias with long black hair, like a young Ercilia and her daughter Perla. I used to have a recurring dream before moving before moving in with Papi and Alice. In it, Woody Woodpecker uses his beak to poke holes in my face. When I feel like I can't survive another peck, a very tall Africana with tight curly hair, dressed like a Spanish dama, sweeps me to safety by shooting the, sh uh, shooing the bird away with one hand and hiding me under her huge skirt with the other. When Woody flies away, she holds me tightly against her tetas. The dama's cleavage holds magic that heals the wounds on my face. I never dream of, of being saved by any of the blonde men portrayed on the stained glass windows at St. Thaddeus. Those gods, I'm convinced, don't know the language of the people begging for their divine intervention. Toward the end of Arcilia's visit, we take a walk in the park after dinner. I straggle way behind, trying my best not to, not to be seen with them. In the distance, I can see the group of tennis players. Papi embarrassed me in front of uh, sitting on a bench by the courts. Papi walks by them without saying a word. Alice and Ercilia are holding hands and trailing behind him. What are you doing with those lousy Dominicans? Papi hissed at me last week, although at least one of the players was South American. I just finished playing tennis, I said, at once nervous and hopeful that the men would jump Papi and beat him at least as badly as he had hit me. Let's go play now, he screamed. Eduardo, excuse me, she played all afternoon with us. Rachel is, Jose, Jose said, but Papi cut him off like he did everybody. Get up, I say, Papi demanded. I didn't say goodbye to the guys and followed Papi to the courts in the back. I'm going to fix you with this when we get home, he said, pointing at his tennis racket. Fuck Papi, I thought. Every time he threatened me, the notion of returning the favor one day became my motivation to live, to survive. Every beating, I thought, brought me a step closer to freedom. But I was just doing what you told me to do. You know, it was that creepy pervert, Mike Cohen, who told me my stomach looked soft like Madonna's and that he wanted to stroke it. Not these. Shut your mouth and go run in the park. Exhausted, I walk, o I walk over to Diamond One. The tennis players looked away, just like our neighbors did on the mornings when they heard me screaming for Papi to stop pummeling me. Now, the same guys are staring at, at, at Celia as she walks by, hand in hand with Alice. I imagine they're thinking what I'm thinking. Ercilia's whiteness is a figment of Papi's imagination. Hi, um, is there anybody that you want to read your book, but for some reason may not? But, or, or they might read it, but they never tell you that they read it? Is there any like one person that you hope will read it, but for some reason there, there might be some kind of issue there? I, I thought about that because of what you said about your birth mother. Um, I hope she reads it. I, I don't care. <laughs> I want everybody to read it. Yeah. I really want Oprah to read it. <laughs> let, me rub, let me rub on some good luck here. <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah, come, can you come up to the mic? Okay. 
Let's, um, I'd like to follow up on the Oprah. Uh, Ms. Mathis, what was it like to be crowned and blessed by Lady O herself? Uh, well, it's, it's, of course, a very life-changing, very startling experience. I, yeah, I'm still very much in the middle of it, so it's hard to have perspective on it, but certainly it's, it's uh, the most unexpected thing that could have happened. <laughs> She called called you personally. Yeah, that's um, um, when she picks a book club pick. She calls the people. It was very the most unforgettable and shocking phone call of my life. I think. <laughs> I have a question for you for the comment that you made. You said um, Alice Walker, uh, Toni Morrison, they had done it all, or you know, you gave that impression that you know the heaviness. Mm. Don't you think that you got some heaviness too? Um, well, I didn't mean that no, for in your a negative for your way. younger women, you know, for the younger women that are coming through. Sure. Well, yeah. I guess I, I I didn't mean that 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 what I meant was that certain kinds of definitive black experience novels yes. are things that these women have done along with many others that I could have named, right. so that it's not necessary for me to sort of write. Um, a definitive anything. You know, I can sort of write with my characters in their sort of individual okay. ways of being who and how they are. All right. I, I just felt like our young women today need some definitive writings. You know, I mean, because I needed it, mm. you know, when I was coming through. I was coming through the, the 60s, 70s, mm. and 80s, and Alice Walker and Toni Morrison, and all of them, you know, um, were definitive. And I feel like these young ladies today that are like... Uh, I guess 20s or whatever, mm. definitely something definitive, not from me per se, because, you know, it's from you, you know, you, you're here now, you're the, mm. you're the youth, so. Well, so. I think, I think that the great thing about literature is that it can be approached um, oh. through your humanity, yeah. you know, and I don't think, I think that people can find ways to find what saves them and what is graceful in their lives, what will sustain them, reflections of themselves in um, in characters who are fully wrought and fully created, and that those things don't necessarily have to be, you know, I don't I don't have to write The Invisible Man, for example, because somebody already wrote it, you know, um, and I don't think that I don't, and I think also that you know we've sort of moved forward in time where there are many many problems, of course, that still exist, um, but that you know a, a girl who is 20 right now may not necessarily find the same resonance. In, in Invisible Man in 12, 2013 that she would have found in 1971. Do you know what I mean? And so that, that the ways in which we can, that we can talk about race, we can talk about class, which I think is a thing that does not get talked about, which is enormously, enormously important to talk about. Um, I think that we can have those conversations in different kind of ways that don't sort of come with a, a label that says, this is the definitive story of. People can still find reflections, and I think it's necessary for the for the conversation to evolve and to change because the time has evolved and and, and changed. I, if you sit down and say I'm going to write the definitive, it doesn't work. It, it won't work. Yeah. Mm -mm. You can only tell the story you have to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's time to have some refreshments. Yes. And buy some books. And buy and, some books. And talk oh, so another to another question. Oh, one second. We have a question right here. Sorry, Judy. I was just going to say, as a reader, I think the most important thing is as you write your truth, I find my truth within those words as well. Mm. And especially as a young person, I do a lot, I read a lot. Mm. So I think it's very you important want to say you share your own truth, and then I, like you said, it resonates very good. Mm. Um, I want to make a comment to you, Dina. Dina. 
um, and reading books like A Thousand Splendid Sons and The Kite Runner, I think it's very important, like you said, the perception of, of where the region that you come from is so misunderstood. Yeah. And in reading, I haven't read your book yet, but I will, but in reading Thank books you. like that, you get a different perspective of the humanistic perspective of that type of culture and um, history is very important because when I read those books, I thought, I really understand it. I understand the yeah. thing, like you mentioned, and, and the type of culture, and I think it's very important to read books like that because it gives us as Americans mm -hmm. a perspective on other cultures. Yeah. Um, my other question, and it's for all of you, is that, and I only read Hattie, but the level of dysfunction in Hattie was very, if not necessarily striking, because you read the news and you, and you read about all of the things that are going on in society. But I was looking at Hattie for that one character, that you know, that one redeeming character. And I guess in life, mm. sometimes you don't have that. Your your truth is that there may not be that one redeeming character, that one person mm. hang on. Mm. So I just I think you mentioned it a little bit, but I wanted you all to speak on kind of like the level of dysfunction that's I mean, I don't. Um, I'm not really interested in reading a book about a functional family. They've got, it, they've got it all figured out. <laughs> this, the dysfunction is the is the you know when it gets when it gets juicy when it gets interesting. So and I don't and I also don't even really know any functional families. <laughs> I have no model to work off yeah. of. But you you know you learn to love the. The flaws and you learn to love the, the dysfunction so um, and again it's that like show you can show the wrong way to do some you can show the right way by showing the wrong way or at least that, that it exists mm. and me me personally I when I first started when I first started writing the book I didn't think it was going to be that heavy on the memoir but I realized mm. realized that I had no other um, there was no blueprint um, as far as the Dominican American experience, you know, we're kind of known for fiction, you know, that you know Diaz, Oscar Wilde, his books, and and Nelly Rosario and Angie Cruz and such. But there's nothing in the, in the nonfiction space. And also, um, when I was looking for memoirs by Latinos, um, uh, down uh, these mean streets by Piri Thomas, and uh, once when I was Port when I was Puerto Rican by Esmeralda Santiago. That's of my grandmother and my you know, my my birth mother and grandmother's generation. So there was nothing. So I had to actually uh, create, uh, write a book that I wanted to read, mm -hmm. and um, it was totally. Mm -hmm. If you like dysfunction, you love my book. Yeah. It, it is dysfunctional from the first page to the last, and there's no, and it doesn't end in a Tiffany's box. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the, it doesn't end like with a pink bow tie. Everything, everybody's happy. Yeah. It ends in a place where I am now, you know, like in, in between what I say, truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Can I just say something about this point? Wait, wait. Yeah. What's your perception of Juno Diaz's writing? Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that um, in general, um, when you talk about Dominican Americans, there's a lot of gender politics that goes on being a woman and dealing with men in that space. And men have a, an issue because of the way we're raised. You know, men are coddled mm -hmm. by their mothers and women are not. Um, and, you know, we're kind of domesticated, right? Um, that sometimes it's, a, it's hard as adults as much as we want to try to shake it off. Um, that's my politically correct answer. Very good. Um, I love, and I absolutely love, 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 loved, loved um, A Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I didn't want it to end because I saw myself in it. 
but I also would have, you know, I wanted to read a true story. So, and I've been, I mean, it's been, my book has been um, likened to his, to his writing. And I think it's just because of, you know, we're both Dominican American and we're, 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 you know, pulling out of the same well, like we have the same foundation, but that's where the similarities end, I think. And a lot, there's a lot of cursing. In both of our books, <laughs> except his has a lot more N words in mine. <laughs> Can I just say a quick thing about this dysfunction thing? Because sure. I think it's really fascinating. I, I, it's just, I mean, I agree that there, you know, this is the kind of stories you want to read. But I also think that the kind of stories you want to read are the kind of stories that, like, where somebody just changes and the world tilts on its axis somehow, you know. And um, in 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 Persian, there's a quote by the um, the you know, Persian poet Rumi that says, a wound is where the light enters you. So if somebody has no wound, you know, and nothing where a light can enter them, how can they change, you know? So the dysfunction is necessary. It's, I mean, without it, what you have is inability to change. So true. Anybody else? Well, we're going down to two to buy some books and to have refreshments and a little snack or so. Thank you so much. Thank you.